Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we're chatting with Maurice Carlos Ruffin, who is the author of the Stacks Book Club pick, We Cast a Shadow. We're going to do a spoiler-free look at this satirical speculative fiction novel and how it came into the world. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. Use that link to shop for the books we've discussed and read the articles we mention. Plus, you'll find our social media accounts in the show notes, and it'll help keep you connected to the stacks. If you love the show and you want more of it, check out our Patreon page. You can support the work we're doing, earn perks for yourself, and be connected to our amazing community of wonderful listeners. Go to patreon.com slash the stacks. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts. Okay, now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Okay, everybody, I am here today talking with Maurice Carlos Ruffin, the author of We Cast a Shadow. Maurice, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. So we always start these episodes the exact same way. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about your book? Sure. So my book is about a family. The main character is an African-American lawyer who uh, lives 50 years in the future in an unnamed southern city. And uh, he's married uh, to Penny, who is a white lady. And his child, uh, Nigel, is mixed race. And uh, the narrator is just really worried about the uh, vicious effects of racism against his son. And so he decides the best way to protect his child from racism in America is to turn him white. And where did you get this idea? How did this come to you? It, it, it's, it was a lot of different factors. I think like a lot of writers, just it was the sort of timing and, and things I had been thinking about. I had been thinking a lot about Trayvon Martin around that time when I started writing the book okay. and about people I knew who, who were not African-American like myself, who were um, white folks who just couldn't understand how I would see the tragedy in that, in that young man's death. Mm-hmm. And I recognize you can have people who are otherwise well-intentioned but don't understand uh, you know, what a society can do to somebody who is othered. And so thinking about that, I said, well, you know, how would this how would this exist in a narrative form? And um, who is this character? And he just sort of announced his presence one day. And there he was. 
<laughs> I love that. So first of all, this book is fantastic. We're talking about it next or on Wednesday on our podcast. Like we're doing a whole deep dive. So we won't be spoiling anything here today. But I do mm. kind of want to know, it's a satire. It's a little science fiction-y, maybe speculative fiction is a better way to say it. Why the satire part? Like, do you think you could have told the story in a non-satirical way or not not who you are, not what it is? Well, I can give you a bunch of fancy answers as to why, but okay. I think the two simple answers that are true is that one, when I write, I just want to have a good time, whether I'm okay. writing a short story or an essay or whatever. I just want to sort of enjoy the experience. And with such a dark topic, I think that if it had very little humor or satire, it would have, it would have been too heavy. Um, but also I'm from New Orleans and New Orleans is a tourist city. And so people, I think most of our workers are, are working in the service industry and there's a sort of sort of blase feeling towards tourists, not against them, but kind of like, oh, here come these tourists. They want another party. There's mm-hmm. a party like every 10 minutes in the city, basically. Right. And so it becomes sort of, you know, humorous, just watching it happen over and over and over again. And mm. I can tell you my experiences with racism is that, I mean, a simple example is that, uh, you know, walking into a store for the first time and being monitored by the sales clerk made me angry the first time it happened and then confused the second time it happened. But by the fifth or 20th time it happens to you, it's kind of like, you know what, this is really hilarious. You know, th- right. There's my old friend racism watching me walk around the store. Right. So that's kind of how I thought about it. Okay. I like that. That's a really good answer. Um, I saw, so I am not huge on reading satire. It's, I think it's really hard. I tell people, I think it's like a muscle. I think you really have to flex your satire muscle as a reader, because if you're watching a film or a TV show that's satirical, the actors might give you some clues with their faces that they're joking. And so I think that the ability to write satire is got to be super challenging because you have to be putting the nuance in, in your writing. You can't rely on, you know, Donald Glover to roll his eyes for you or whatever. Um, So true. And you and you this is your first novel, but you are a writer in addition to being a lawyer. Do you find did you find that writing satire was more challenging than maybe writing something that's more straightforward? You know, I, I think that satire is probably my natural mode. OK, um, again, being from this city and then growing up reading books, for example, like um, John Kennedy Toole's um, Confederacy of Dunces, for example, mm-hmm. which is, is set in New Orleans. It's written like 50 or 60 years ago now. And yet it's it's still like the tone of it, it like fits the city. People here have a great sense of humor. Okay. Also a gallows humor and a very quick humor um, that uh, unveils itself slowly, um, you know, to outsiders. And so I think in writing the book, um, you know, I wanted the satire, but also, you know, I, I don't like satires that are too quippy or witty or glib or shallow. Right. And so I wanted to have like a beating heart, which is why the family is really the, the sort of center of everything that's going on here. To them, it's a very serious story. Right. Of course. I do want to talk a little bit about the New Orleans part of the book or or the city, as it is mm-hmm. called in the book. I shouldn't assume that it's New Orleans, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of world building that you do throughout the book, kind of leaving us Easter eggs about things that we might recognize from our current world, but that are changed or similar in in this future world. How much of the city is based on real life and how much of it is just you kind of going off and doing your thing? Well, New Orleans is definitely a foundation. Um, I don't say it's New Orleans and maybe it's not New Orleans. I I think I may have thought of it as sort of a speculative future Mm -hmm. in which maybe, you know, New Orleans is called something else. Um, 
But, you know, the bottom line is that it's definitely a southern city and it definitely has a lot of the traits of this city, including streetcars and a sort of carnival parade that happens once a year. And a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, draw to beef and just geographically, some things I invented, like there is um, and there's this really gigantic mall that sits on the river called, uh, the you know, the Mall of the Seven Myrtles doesn't exist here in real life. Right. But I, I just sort of expanded it. And also these, these you know, the projects, the, the Ticoloche projects, you know, these are me just sort of extrapolating using the past where we had these projects and these sort of malls that are gone now mm. and making my own futuristic version of them. Okay. What was the hardest part about writing this book and what about this book came easily to you? You know, the hardest thing about it, I think that anybody who is taking on a, a serious topic, you know, whether it's sexual assault or suicide or racism, mm. those are dark materials. And um, what happens is that to really engage with it and to try and create an experience for your reader, you have to really have this almost um, this uh, method actor's mindset of putting yourself into the main character's shoes and walking along with this person. And so I'll tell you, there were times where I was reading, you know, research material and getting prepared to write a chapter. And I would think, I just feel so sad right now. Mm. And I think that maybe in a, in a strange way, the book took longer for me sort of like stopping occasionally for a week or so and just like not writing for a while so I could think about it and bring myself back to it. And I was looking to have a lot of good friends and, and people in my life to keep me, you know, entertained and happy and, and, and full of life. Um, but it was hard to, to, you know, stay in that topic for four years. Right. And what sort of research materials were you reading and going to? Well, it varies. I mean, I think that I definitely read a, a good number of nonfiction books. I think maybe the first one I wrote for this uh, read for this project was um, New Jim Crow by mm. Michelle Alexander, which is just a wonderful book. And part of it is set in New Orleans, where she's researching like uh, Tulane University and the, and the policing of that university. Um, I've watched a lot of movies, believe it or not. I'd never seen a film called uh, Imitation of Life from mm. the 1950s that really informed a lot of this idea of othering and uh, passing for white and how you have to sort of bend yourself like a pretzel to fit into society. Mm. And a lot of um, online research too, which is so convenient to have, you know, yeah. Wikipedia, Google, university resources, and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Um, how did you come up with the title for the book? You know, it, it took a while. And I think in my process, I'm the kind of writer where if I don't have a title that I'm hundred percent satisfied with, I know I'm not quite done with it. So I had many working titles. Um, okay. At one point, it was called Nigel after the son in the book. Okay. Um, at one point, I think it was called The Sellout. And then Paul Beatty's book came out. And I was like, well, you can't do that. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I mean, so I just, um, in my mind, on the very last day of me sitting in a coffee shop writing, like revising like, like, like the late version of this book, I kept sitting there thinking, all right, Maurice, just like put a bunch of titles on the screen and see what happens. And I put down We Cast a Shadow, um, which was based on an earlier title I had called All, all of the Lights you know, Kanye West song from uh, Dark Fantasy. And I didn't want like Kanye West to see my, my All of the Lights title and kind of get mad and like attack me on Twitter. So I just reversed it from All of the Lights to We Cast a Shadow, okay. which is sort of the, you know, the, the photo negative version of that same title. And, you know, there's a lot more shadows in the book than, than, there are, than, there, than there's light. So it sort of fitted as well. Yeah. Well, that's so funny that you say that you said the sellout just because now I'm thinking about that book. And your covers are kind of similar in the idea oh, yeah. of like those fate, like the repeated image over and over and over. Yes, absolutely. And that had not dawned on me until I'm sitting here just now and I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, you're not because you are the first person to point it out. And actually, I never made that connection myself. Oh, so okay, good. <sighs> good on you. <laughs> I would not have made it if you hadn't literally said the sellout, but 
I'm glad that I I'm glad that I took it there. It's teamwork. Yeah, perfect. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about Maurice, the writer person, aside from the book. So I know that you're a lawyer, and I know that our lead character, our narrator, is also a lawyer. So I guess the question is twofold. How much of you would you say is in the book? Which I know is kind of a weird it's sometimes a I sometimes don't like that question, but only because those two things match up. And I know that you're in New Orleans and it's a New Orleans-ish. But also Mm. how much of the stuff about law firms Mm. is real? (laughs) Well, so so the thing about it is that if if I was not a lawyer, I'm not sure I could have written this book. Um, The sort of source material of this book is my experiences as a lawyer over a 13 or 14 year period, give or take. And, um, you know, certainly law firms are very particular places. They're problematic across the board right. for misogyny, for, you know, anti-immigrant, uh, you know, uh, comments because of race, because of the sort of classism. And I mean, I can just go down the list. I think for me as a black man in the South, being in a total of, I think, five different firms over that 13 year period, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of things. And, um, you know, I can tell you, it's funny. I, I tried to make the scenes that were set either in the law firm or at firm events seem as sort of surreal as possible. But I had at least one lawyer uh, who worked for a local firm, you know, a, a middle-aged white guy say, you could have went a lot harder and a lot darker, man. Like people in these firms are saying things you would just not, you would not believe. Hmm. And my internal response was, well, you know, I don't get to like even hear a lot of that because a lot of those things are said behind closed doors where the power brokers are talking about women and hmm. minorities and that sort of thing. So I went out there, but apparently I could have went even farther. Yeah, <laughs> turns out. What, what kind of law do you practice? Well, I'm, semi, I'm semi-retired now. So oh, okay. um, I was a, 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 a corporate defense lawyer, basically representing insurance companies, hospitals, uh, mm-hmm. restaurants. Okay. Uh, but, but now I pretty much teach creative writing full-time at uh, LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. So do you have to go to Baton Rouge a lot? I do. I travel there a few times a week to teach my classes. And I actually enjoy the drive. I like listening to podcasts like yours oh, or you. You know, uh, playing music. I've been to, ba- I'm, I'm, my people are from Baton Rouge. No way. Yeah. So I was actually, I, I drove from New Orleans and I was there for a wedding not too long ago to go try to see my dad's house, but it had been torn down, which was a bummer oh, for me. But I did do the drive and it was beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Um, well, you know, home, right? Yeah. I'd, ne- I'd never been. My dad never. and his people, they, they moved out to California in the 1930s. Yeah, so he was a baby, um, and they came. They did the Great Migration thing, and they went to San Francisco. And so he and my mom had been back to visit, but I had never been. I'd been to New Orleans, but I'd never been to Baton Rouge. So I drove by myself, just like through the bayou. It was gorgeous, but it was a very surreal experience for me. That's quite an adventure. I mean, that's that's amazing, and I guess I'm proud of your ancestors for making the decision to. I guess, get out for whatever their purposes were. You know, that's a good thing. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. 
The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Have you read The Warmth of Other Suns? You know, I've read most of it. I still have to, it's on my shelf. I have to finish reading it. Okay. Well, it, part of it was that I'd finished that book in May you had of to the go. year and I had a wedding in New Orleans. So I changed my whole thing. I flew in a day early. Like I was like, I have to go. I have to see, I have to see. <laughs> so anyways, totally off topic, but who cares? It's a podcast. That's it's why all these things are great. Yeah. So you said it took you almost four years to write the book. Where yes. did you do the writing? How did you find time to do the writing? How do you squeeze in just a casual novel into a teaching and <laughs> law career? Well, I, you know, I, I think that for me, it's a few things. Well, number one, I like to write in coffee shops. Okay. And uh, there's one here that I love. I'll just name it. It's called Orange Couch, which is in uh, the uh, Marity neighborhood. Um, just outside of the French Quarter, and I go there frequently. In other shops as well, including Rook and a few other ones around town. Um, but timing, you know, I think that a lot of writers have this feeling of, oh, you know, writing is so difficult. How will I find time to do it? Particularly when I was practicing full time as a lawyer and working forty to eighty hours a week. Sometimes <laughs> I often felt like that little bit of time after work, maybe like on a Wednesday night at eight thirty going to a coffee shop and having that hour and a half to write just for myself, it was exhilarating. I feel like I was doing this, this really joyous thing. And now, you know, as a professor of creative writing, 
I, I gain energy from that also. I don't feel tired at the end of the day. I feel like, you know what? I've been talking about writing all day long. How great is that? Yeah. And it just, just gives me a, a good energy. That's I it it's like your mental health break. <laughs> yes. Yes, and now it's my life. <laughs> yeah, now it's your life. But that's so cool that you're able to turn it into your life. How do you write? So you go to your coffee shop, do you have headphones in? Do you listen to music? Do you have a snack? Do you have a go-to beverage? Like rituals? Mm-hmm. What sort of stuff is in your writing space as you write? On maybe a perfect morning, I might go to a shop on a, on a Saturday morning, for example, and uh, start bright and early, 7 o'clock, uh, have a cup of coffee maybe. I'm not, I don't drink too much coffee, but I will sometimes. Have maybe some uh, yogurt, granola, um, play around for a while. Like I actually put playtime into my process. Hmm. I'm going I'm I'm to I'm go online for a while, like just like surf the web, look at emails, write my personal journal on, on my computer for a few minutes. And then within an hour or so, I'll start writing. And... Um, for me, about two or three hours is like my max, maybe, I think. There have been times where I would go like an entire day, taking a lunch break, then going back, and then writing one more time later at night or revising at night. Um, and also, I'm kind of unusual in that I've had periods, like for years, I would write to music in, in my headphones constantly. Like I would just, like for my short stories, each story had like its own like signature song mm. that I would write to. Um, and then also, in, internet, people often say, you know, they can't write if they're plugged in the internet, they get distracted. For me, the distraction is part of my process. I love um, going down those, those sort of rabbit holes and finding things and kind of being like, yes, I need that in my, in my story. And so for me, this, it's, what, it, it, it's whatever works, whatever fits the, the narrative. And um, it's all part of my process. Is there music that goes along with We Cast a Shadow? <laughs> um, I made a playlist for somebody a, a, a few months ago, but definitely there were, there were healthy, healthy doses of Kanye West from dark fantasy era so and that's good. his um album he's like he's so complex in that album like he's like you know i'm the baddest person on the planet but i'm also so like confused and weak and i'm gonna die young and oh and God. i just love the way he just shapes that entire narrative in there and i mean i, I have a pretty wide um swath of taste i love bjork i love uh, joanna newsome um i mean beyonce of course got to have some her in there sometimes as well i can go on and on and on but i, I love a lot of stuff Okay, this is also off topic, but have you ever heard of the podcast Dissect? No. Okay, I'm about to change your life. You're welcome in advance. And the funny thing is this actually came up when I was talking about your book with, uh, or with the guests that I talk about your book with. This podcast came up again, but it's called Dissect. And the host is this guy named Cole Kushna. And he goes to, he does only hip hop albums. And he's kind of this like nerdy white guy. And he is a music guy. So he takes the album track by track and breaks it down. And he does all of my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And he takes no all the samples and he t- goes through the lyrics and he goes through everything. And I love that album since the day it came out. It's one of my favorites. I think it's one of the greatest albums. But he made me love that album in a whole new way. Like songs that I usually skip now, <laughs> 10 years later, I love. He does a whole thing about the nine minute runaway. He takes it into two two episodes to do all of Runaway. It's incredible what he does with the album. So it's called oh Dissect. It's the second season is the Kanye season. This current season he's doing now is he's doing Damn by Ken, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, yeah. He's The guy is super nerdy and I always warn people because it's almost jarring how nerdy he is. <laughs> Like, you're kind of like, who are you? But he's a music theory person. So he talks about the key signature and the, and the 
Like the dissonance Whoa. between the end of, you know, one song and the start of the next song and how the first note in Runaway is actually the last note that finally resolves the song before. It's like stuff <laughs> that blows your mind. So if you're into that album. I am already there. I, I'm t- making a note to myself. Okay. I will be checking that out. I mean, all you have to say was hip hop and dissect. So I'm it's into so it. good. It's so good. Um, and I, I, lo- I just love the show. Um <laughs> We're going on so many tangents today. I love it. I lost my track of thought, but who cares? But see, this is how my mind works because I'm all like footnotes and tangents and parentheticals in my mind. This so is how my go. mind works too. But it can be a problem when you're hosting something and you have to be responsible <laughs> for like the order and the time. It's great when you can just have a conversation. But, oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Because your other job, aside from being writing, be, being a writer and being a creative, is being a lawyer, which is much more rigid, I would assume. Do those things work well together for you? Or do you sometimes find it hard to take off your lawyery hat to sit down and get creative? I think I was born to be a creative. And I okay. think I sort of stumbled into law. Like many people these days go to law because it's sort of like the last result. You, you find a lot of English majors in the law, for example, mm. and a lot of lawyers who have these other talents, whether it be acting or dancing or whatever. And I think that for me, the law has been very, very helpful in that it gave me a sense of discipline. I'm very good at just sitting down and writing for an hour or, you know, an hour and a half and just getting it done without fretting too much, you know, sort of bulldozing through writer's block. Um, and, and then also the feeling of, I think in my younger days, I was, I was, very flowery in my writing and law may be much, much more succinct and efficient and direct in my writing. And so, and then lastly, I have a lot of gumption. Um, you know, if I get a no, I don't take that as the final answer. Hmm. Um, you know, with the submissions process in my short stories, for example, I would just figure out new techniques to fight forward. And I've been very successful in getting stories published, getting my novel published and getting other things published. And that gumption is a, an important part of being a successful writer, I think. And did you always want to be a writer? Was that always part of who you were? Or is that something that came to you later in life? I definitely always enjoyed literature and storytelling in all its forms, whether it's talk, you know, whether it's like a, you know, a, a Toni Morrison book I would have read as like a, a 11 year old or a Maya Angelou um, or, you know, comics and film. And, um, you know, those things were all part of my world. Um, but like a lot of writers, if you don't know a writer personally, you don't know how you get to that place, you know, mm-hmm. how you become a quote unquote writer. And so it was like my personal hero's journey, I say, to, to like take 15 years to figure out how to go from being this guy who really wants to like try to write a novel to, wow, I wrote a novel. How about that? Hmm. And this is kind of a everyman question. What's mm-hmm. the word that you can never spell right on the first try? Oh, oh, there's a couple of them. Oh, <laughs> I was talking to my students last night. And I was trying to write something on the board and I could not get it right. See, I'm good at I'm good at hieroglyphics and arpeggios, <laughs> but I'm I'm bad. So there's a name I can't get Virginia Woolf's last name right ever on the first try. Okay. Um, sometimes I can't recognize which, like you know, whether or which. Okay. I can't like I just keep thinking, well, how do you spell it? Or maybe some <laughs> it's really weird like that. Um, words like assiduous and conscientious, like lots of C's and S's. I just can't figure out how many S's to put into it or how many you know. Uh, and so yeah, those kind of words as well. Uh, I love it. I just love hearing because writers write and you think they're just do, 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 do. like you don't think they ever have to backspace. <laughs> oh, no. Spell check is a lifesaver. Thank you. I don't know how that. people did it before spell check. I don't know. I don't understand. I can't yeah. even send an email, a casual email without being go having to go back and fix it. For people who love We Cast a Shadow, what are some other books that you might recommend to them? 
Oh my goodness, there's so many of them. I'll start from present and then I'll work back backwards a little bit. Um, so I, I highly recommend um, Sarah Broom's The Yellow House. And uh, that book is um, nonfiction. Uh, she's up for a National Book Award right now. We're from the same little neighborhood called New Orleans East, which is like 98% African-American. And the way she details the sort of geography and the family life of that area, I see like, I see like some of my own like thoughts and writing on her pages. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, we're like related as writers in this community. Um, Matt Johnson has a book called Pym. Pym is his take on Edgar Allan Poe's only novel. It's this weird sort of racial uh, racial allegory. Um, it's very bizarre and very amazing. Um, anything um, by, for example, of course, we know Jasmine Ward. We have uh, K.S.A. Lemon. I, I love what they do. Uh, those two writers in particular are so good at showing these the sort of abundance of the, of the black experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, K.S.A. is a person who made me like um, – Love Mississippi, which I always kind of avoided. You know, okay. as a Southerner, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> We're bad in Louisiana, but Mississippi, my goodness, right? Mm-hmm. But I see how he presents the strength of black families um, in, in, in culture, and I love that so much. And I guess lastly, I think about books like, um, you know, this book was in part inspired by Ralph Ellison in um, Invisible Man. And when I read that book as like an 18-year-old in college, I kept thinking, you know, this is what it feels like to be, to be myself in the world. And I've not seen this anywhere else in anything else. And a big part of my journey of writing this book was to kind of say, you know what, I want to pay homage to that as much as I possibly can. And so he sort of made me as a writer in a lot of ways. And that book was really uh, helpful to me. So my listeners will be hearing this before they hear the episode where we talk about your book. But Chris L. Terry, who's who's my guest when we talk about your book, he actually says... Black card. Yeah. Black card. Black card. Yeah. He says, there's, he says something along the lines of, there's no way that the this book isn't inspired by Invisible Man. And he says something very <laughs> similar about his experience with Invisible Man, that it was something yes. that he, that changed the way that he kind of understood how and who could be a writer. Ellison has many children. And yeah. um, I mean, even I think um, the man who wrote The Sympathizer. Um, mm, Viet Nguyen. Yeah, 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 Viet Nguyen. Viet yeah. Nguyen, exactly. I mean, he said he was inspired by that. Yeah, And I think Ellison was maybe one of the very first people to give us a real sort of psychological insight to what it means to be othered in the West. And um, he, he did it just so well. I mean, it resonates even today. I actually have not read that book. It's on my list. It's been on my list forever. It's one of the ones I'm sort of embarrassed that I haven't read. But, you know, there's just so many. There are so many books. But I have read Black No More, which, remind, which reminds me of your book, obviously. Uh, George Shuler. Yeah. Because they're in the same in the same kind of world, they go different directions, but they kind of start in similar places. You know, what's funny about that, that book has been mentioned more times than any other book in my interviews. I've never read it. Um, I know what it's about. And I I think like my explanation for how that works is that um, I think that so many of us writers, people of color are sort of joined across time. Like we're holding hands almost. Mm -hmm. So my premise is almost the exact same premise, just, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, 80 or 90 years later. Um, but it certainly it shows you that we're facing the, the same issues that were being faced back then. And we're trying to figure out how to approach these things and talk about them in a way that makes sense to ourselves and to uh, non-people of color. Yeah, it's true. It, your books are definitely, like I said, they kind of start in the same place and they they do go different directions, but they're obviously dealing with the same sorts of questions. And yes. it's just a matter of who kind of your protagonists are yes. that 
that takes them in different places, which is to say that having good, strong characters makes a huge difference. Absolutely. So because you're talking about race and you're not talking only to Black people in your book, have you received pushback on this book? And if so, was any of it stuff that you agreed with? That's a good question. And first of all, I mean, the the book has some scenes that are very, very intense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it involves physical abuse sometimes. And that can be hard to, to think about at all. Um, if you combine that with race and gender and everything else that's going on in this book, those moments are difficult. And I have had at least like one or two readers. Well, maybe the funniest reader was somebody, it was the first comment on Amazon. Ugh. She says, you know, Maurice Ruffin is a troublemaker for talking about this at all, period, in this way. And I think I smiled when she said that because I kept thinking, you know what? If I wasn't making trouble, it wasn't worth writing this story. Mm. And as I look back on it now, I think, well, you know who said it best? I saw it this morning. Jeremy uh, Harris, who has that play, Slave Play, um, up in New York right now. He was on a TV show this morning. And he said, you know, if if I offended anybody or hurt anybody with my writing, you know, I understand that. I accept that. And I can't reject it. But in a sense, I'm only talking to myself. Mm. And so if I'm hurting anybody, I'm hurting myself. But if, but I, but but, you know, if you overheard my conversation, then that's on you. Mm. And, um, you know, maybe it's a content warning or maybe it's just like, you know, that's part of what art does. Art is going to make you feel uncomfortable and make you feel a little strange inside. And if it doesn't, then maybe it's not really art. Right. And if you're writing satire and you're not making trouble, you're probably not doing very good. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's the whole point of writing a satire. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just write a memoir or or a novel that is, this is the way the world is, right? Like hmm. <laughs> Everything is so nice. Yeah. No you could do that, but it wouldn't we've be over, satire. We've overcome everything. All the problems have been vanquished. <laughs> yes. In this near future in the city, there's no race. We, nobody sees color. <laughs> um, who's the coolest person who's expressed interest in this book or who you've heard from that read it that made your heart sing? Oh my goodness. So many people. I mean, I'll go with the most recent person, uh, Dr. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, Ugh. who, uh, his most recent book is how to be an anti-racist. And he wrote stamp from the beginning, which won the national book award. If anybody's he, listening to this podcast and doesn't know who that is, they yes. must be a brand new listener because he's yes. one of my faves. Yeah, so he, he was on a podcast uh, back in September, which I didn't even I wasn't even aware of it. And then somebody retweeted it on Twitter like two or three days ago, mm. and he was talking about my book in like two different segments in that show. And he was like so into like the main character and the problems presented. He's like, this book is so complex. And I was like, oh, well, that's all I need. I mean, that that's it. And I, I, I've reached the, the pinnacle. Do you know what podcast it was? Uh, long reads. Okay. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for people if they want to hear Yeah, the that. September 3rd episode. Yes. Okay. Oh my God. That's oh my such God. a cool person. Okay. If you could have one person dead or alive, read your book, who would it be? Oh my goodness. Oh man, that's a tough one. <laughs> Ooh. I, you know, I would love to know what Toni Morrison would have thought about it because she's such a hero to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I didn't have any co- um, connection to her personally, but her books have touched me so much. Mm. And I know that I, I'm not even, you know, half the writer that she is. But I think that the sort of courage she had and the ability to just, to just put things out there and not fear what people would say about it. That's such a big part of what I try and do in my writing. And her brain was just so huge. So I, I can only imagine where she would go in talking about what I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good person. Maurice, that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, this was wonderful. I'm so happy to have been a part of this. Me too. And everyone else listening at home, make sure you go get your copy of We Cast a Shadow. It's been out in the world for a while now, so you can get it wherever you get your books. And tune in on Wednesday. We're going to be discussing this book in more detail with spoilers. So make sure you read it before you listen. But Maurice, thank you so much for being here. And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you for listening to The Short Stacks and thank you to Maurice Carlos Ruffin for chatting with me today. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show and more, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the fun. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. <laughs>